Yeah. It took us a while to get it going, and then it exploded. We had to put up a new 60,000-square-foot factory every three months. We never could catch up with production. At every single showing, Steve Jobs showed up with a couple of his engineers and stood right in front. From Palo Alto, California, Silicon Mines. On this edition of Silicon Mines, the former president of Shugart Associates, the company behind the mini floppy disk drive. What you're seeing here is the huge investment that Xerox made in the Office of the Future. Don Macero stands before the Xerox Office of the Future exhibit at the Computer History Museum in Mountain View, California, like an explorer who has uncovered the source of a great river. This was the uh, first what we call metaphoric computer, which was the Autos, that basically used the concept of icons and mice and the concept of pointing and clicking as opposed to using a keyboard to type in commands. It really set the foundation for just about everything we have today. Don Macero is one of the key figures in the rise of computing. His name is associated with the mini floppy disk and the personal computer technologies envisioned at Xerox's Palo Alto Research Center. And like many in the industry, he started in another field. While a PhD student studying rocket science at UC Berkeley in the 1960s, he got a summer job with IBM helping to develop disk drive technologies. In 1967, IBM had this project called the 3330 disk drive. It was their high-performance disk drive, and it had a 14-inch disk pack with 10 disks, and it would store 100 megabytes. Now, people laugh at that today, but that was pretty high stuff. They could sell the thing for 30 grand. The entire program had come to a screeching halt. The program was way behind schedule. They had a, uh, a resonance problem, a mechanical resonance problem within the drive that kept it from performing. And because of my background, they put me into the air bearing group, which was the air bearing was the, the recording head was uh, floating over the disc on a bearing. It wasn't flying like a plane. It was, it was more like a, a bearing in a car. One IBM group was researching the problem in a lab investigating the physical behavior of the recording head. But Macero went to another group, headed by Denny Tang, which approached the problem theoretically. Don Macero, the budding rocket engineer, had as his starting reference the only book that existed on air bearings at the time. So I spent the first couple of weeks reading this book on air bearings. And I realized that the equations that defined this air bearing were identical to the equations that defined heat transfer. And that's what I was getting my PhD in at Berkeley. So I basically went to Dr. Tang. I said, you know, I think I can come up with a theoretical model for this air bearing if you give me a big enough computer. There was an available machine, and Macero began writing a program in Fortran G. It took nearly three weeks to write the program and another three weeks to debug it. In those days, we would write the programs and it would be on punch cards. And a box of punch cards would hold 2,000 cards. So I had, my program was 4,000 cards long. So I had a, like a box under each arm. So like I was a real nerd walking around with, you know, two boxes of punch cards. The program used a massive amount of compute power. It took two and a half hours to simulate 
0.8 milliseconds, but the simulation of the behavior of the recording head worked. I could simulate the head's motion over the disc. And numerically what I did is I designed a disc that had like a cliff. So the head would go off the cliff and then you could watch the motion in the head and pitch and roll and yaw and determine what the natural frequencies were. So it would take the guys in the lab like two weeks to run one experiment and I could simulate it in one night. So I'm just running this thing constantly. I'm just burning up all this computer time. But I was able to develop a very good simulation of what the recording head was doing. And I had mapped out all the frequencies in pitch rolling excursion. By 1972, a lead engineer in the IBM group, Alan Shugart, left for Memorex, the maker of reel-to-reel tape for computers. Memorex wanted to get into the disk drive business. Macero was amongst the first group of engineers Shugart courted to leave IBM. I didn't know who Al Shugart was because the guy was, you know, five layers above me. So he calls me one day and says, Don, I'd like to come over and talk to you about coming to work at Memorex. He gives me this big sales pitch to go do that. You know, I said, Al, I'm really happy with IBM. Because when I got out of school, getting a job at IBM, that was great stuff. You don't want to go off to some dirtball company. I said, you know, I, I don't think I want to go do it. He says, well, we'll double your salary and we'll give you 2,000 shares of Memorax stock at like a dollar a share. It was already worth $160,000. So I said, yes, okay. So I went there and we basically put Memorax into the disk drive business. Very, very successful, incredibly successful. But that success did not necessarily translate to a new company, Shugart Associates, founded in 1973. Don Macero would become its president. We never knew it was going to take off. As a matter of fact, we had very difficult time raising money to go do Shugart because all the analysis, you, you bring in these independent analytic, uh, analysis groups, these research groups, and they estimated that the total size of the floppy disk market would not exceed 35,000 units a year. It wasn't until one of Shugart's largest customers asked for a smaller floppy disk drive, something smaller than the 8-inch drive and one that would cost a lot less. The five-and-a-quarter-inch mini-floppy disk would put Shugart Associates on the map and unknowingly help fuel the PC revolution. The question was, what was the smallest drive that we could make that had decent storage capacity that we could sell for $100? And so we settled on five-and-a-quarter-inch because if we had made it any smaller than five-and-a-quarter-inch, the diskette you could put in your pocket and it was a soft jacket diskette. And if you put it in your pocket, you'd crease the disk and you'd lose the data. It wasn't magic, that was the, you know, <laughs> that was the minimum size that you could, we could come up with. If you go look at Wikipedia and look at the five and a quarter inch, and, I, and I've tried to fix this 14 times, but you know, with Wikipedia, somebody can always overwrite what you're doing. So they maintained it was designed after a napkin that Jimmy Atkinson and I picked up in a bar in Boston and so forth, but the, it, it was not. In 1976, Shugart launched the 110KB SA400. The five-and-a-quarter-inch disk drive would be the company's biggest selling product. It started to explode, where we had to put up a new factory, like a new 60,000-square-foot factory every three months. And we, we never could catch up with production. And the company literally went from $2 million to $9 million to $20 million to $50 million to $150 million to $250 million. Shugart was Act One of Don Macero's technology career in Silicon Valley. It was the setup for a second act, the personal computer. Shugart was actually kind of at, the, at one of the cornerstones of the whole 
personal computer market, both in terms of the mini floppy, but I even maintain more than that was the adaption of the floppy mechanism for a hard drive, which we came out with the first low-cost hard drives. At that time, if you wanted a rotating memory, the cheapest rotating memory you could buy was like $5,000. So there's no way that you could ever build a low-end computer if the disk drive costs $5,000. Whereas a floppy disk drive, the five and a quarter inch, we can make for $50, and you could sell it for 100 which means you could retail it for 200 So what it did, it enabled, it was an enabler of personal computers. Now, what happened over time is that the floppy just became a load device, and then we came out with low-cost hard drives. So one of the things we actually did at Shugart, which is actually more significant than a floppy disk drive, is we took the mechanism for a floppy, which was a simple stepper motor, very inexpensive mechanism, and we put a hard drive on it with a Winchester head. Now, if you wanted a hard drive that had high performance, it would cost you $5,000. So we took the floppy mechanism and put a hard drive on it and then compensated for the temperature, and that created the whole low end of the hard disk drive market, ultimately ending up in Seagate and Connor and all these other companies that took off. Xerox, a leader in computer research, saw the significance of floppy disk drives and acquired Shugart in 1977. Uh, I, I, I did not like the disk drive business. It was a, a little too boring. It was, uh, I liked manufacturing, but it was all about manufacturing, manufacturing costs. There was really no strategy in it. And I was always more interested in the system side of the business. So when I had a chance to go to Dallas to run the office products division, I just jumped at it. And one of the projects on the table at Xerox was an initiative called the Office of the Future. Now, this was late 70s, early 80s. Nobody actually knew what the Office of the Future was like. What uh, the Office Products Division had at that point in time were word processors, in fact, simile machines, and that was it. And obviously, word processors were used by secretaries and not by professionals and fax machines were just coming into their own. It was the early 1980s when America was wondering who shot JR and Dolly Parton was singing about being stuck in the office pool. Somewhere between the executive suite and the word processing center, between the upper-level managers and the administrative assistants. There are a group of people called professionals. The professionals are people whose main concern is with the content of information. What it should say. How should it be said. What's the format. To whom should it be directed. The professional, as described in that Xerox short film, was the target of the company's Office of the Future. Macero began poking around Xerox to see what offerings the company could come up with. So one of the first things I did was kind of review all the programs that were in development. Nothing was very exciting. David Kearns, who was the new president at Xerox, suggested I take a look at their research center. So I went up to Rochester, where they were doing all their research on the copiers and duplicators, and, and I didn't see anything there that would excite me. And then it was suggested I go out to their research center in Palo Alto called Park, Palo Alto Research Center. And I came out there and I was just blown away. I mean, there I saw Altos and I saw a local area network and I saw electronic printing 
and I saw email, and I saw everything that we see today that we take for granted they had back there in the late 70s, early 80s. And I literally flew back to corporate headquarters in Stamford, Connecticut that very day and went to Dave Kearns and said, David, I want that technology. Okay, so basically what we did is we put together a group of about 200 engineers under Dave Liddell that came out of Park to take that technology to turn it into a system that we could engineer for production and ship to the marketplace. And what you saw in 1981 was STAR. And STAR was really the first system that was a, a metaphor computer that basically used icons and windows and mice and had a local area network that you had printers and gateways attached to it. Here's a presentation from Xerox in the early 1980s. Most people who saw this had never heard of this technology. The star keyboard has three groups of function keys and a standard central part. The upper function group is referred to as soft keys. When text is being edited, they have meanings shown on the key tops. For example, make the currently selected text look bold or italic. The left function group contains the generic commands. Delete, copy, show properties, copy properties, and again. There is a pointing device called a mouse. As the mouse is moved beside the keyboard, the cursor on the screen moves correspondingly. Two buttons on the mouse, called select and adjust, are used to make and adjust a selection. This object on the desktop represents a document and is called a document icon. When I move the cursor over it and press one of the mouse buttons, it becomes selected and shows that it is selected by highlighting itself by doing a video reverse. I have just pressed the open key in the left functional group. This opens the document. This means we create a window and display the contents of the document through the window. At the Computer History Museum, Macero leans forward to point out a system even earlier than Xerox Star. This one laid the foundation for some significant concepts that became the personal computing we know. This was the uh, first what we call metaphoric computer, which was the Autos, that basically used the concept of icons and mice and the concept of pointing and clicking as opposed to using a keyboard to type in commands. And it really set the, God, the foundation for just about everything we have today. So when you look at Microsoft or you look at Apple and you look at that computer interface with the nice little icons that you point to and click on with a mouse or with a right-hand button, you, you pull down what the options are in terms of what you can do with it. It all came out of Xerox. The Apple story, in its beginnings in the late 70s, intersects with Macero and his work on the Office of the Future. When we announced STAR at the uh, National Computer Conference, and I think it was 1981, we were to hit his show. I mean, we had STAR systems set up about five different stations, and every 15 minutes we started a new show. And I remember that at every single showing, Steve Jobs showed up with a couple of his engineers and stood right in front of the one of the stars during the demo. And this went on and on for days and so forth. I knew Steve well, and, and we sold him uh, many floppy disk drives. Also, I got Xerox to actually invest in Apple Computer back in probably 1979, 1980. Apple was just starting out. You know, there were a lot of personal computer companies back there. Apple just happened to be one of them. The net result of that is that when I got back to my office, I had a nice bouquet of flowers from Steve Jobs saying, thank you very much for bringing this technology to the marketplace. 
and then he started to hire the engineers at, <laughs> at a park and in the systems development division and went on and did Lisa and then followed that up with Macintosh and the rest is history. And so it was, but even here, Don Macero moved the dial forward in the personal computing space. When he first visited Park back in 1970, it had made such an impression on him that when he returned to it as a Xerox executive, the office of the future was a concept he deeply believed in. I got very excited about it, and one of my challenges was in the Xerox Corporation where most all those executives came from the copy of Duplicator, and they actually didn't want any of this stuff, okay? So it was kind of a fight to bring this technology to the marketplace because they kind of wanted to stay a document company, and they didn't see it. I fell in love with it from day one, and then when my tour of duty was up with Xerox, I went back and started a company called Metaphor Computer Systems, which, which was the first company to utilize the whole metaphor computer, the concept of icons and pointing devices and windows and pull-down menus and so forth. But it wasn't along the document and it was along the data processing and we actually came to the marketplace with a system that was very advanced for its age. It was way more advanced than anything that was out there and we ended up selling the company to IBM in 1991. So I've always been in love with this technology. I think the Xerox and the people at Park just did an unbelievable job and everything you see today came from there. So it started with Apple copy and then Microsoft copied Apple and then went on from there. But if you go back and look in 19 say, 83, 84, in terms of what we had at Metaphor, it took Microsoft 10 years to catch up to that. And it took Apple probably six or seven years to catch up with that stuff. At the time, Macero and his colleagues saw Apple as a brief shooting star aimed at the homebrew computer enthusiast market. There really weren't any serious applications until they came out with VisiCalc. And you look more toward IBM and their personal computer, or at Xerox, we actually put out a personal computer that was a real low-end device. And we kind of discounted Apple, to be honest with you, back in the late 70s and early 80s, and actually through most of the 80s, even when Macintosh came out. Primarily because we were focused on selling to large enterprises, and Apple was really focused on selling to consumers. So we never really paid any attention to it. And now that's all changed now. You, you walk into corporate America, into the Fortune 500, you see Apple computers all over the place because there are a lot of branches from this. You could take this technology and see all the companies that branched off of it. I mean, not only Apple in terms of Lisa and Macintosh and, and Microsoft with Windows, but Adobe and so forth. I mean, the, the list of companies that used the technology out of Park to create the marketplace we know in was, was amazing. And the trajectory of Park's research continues today expressed in those companies that used its ideas and hired its engineers. Macero sees a logical path to that trajectory, noting that at some point, people listening to even this interview will wonder what it was like before tablets overtook laptops. Probably desktop computing as we know it is probably going to go away and it's going to be replaced by iPads. Now, you'll still have, you know, high-end desktop computer for, you know, computer-aided design and, and applications like that, but in terms of the laptop as we know it, and that's going to get replaced by the iPad. And you could say the iPad is a derivative of all this technology that came out of Park because it uses icons and it uses windows. And you're, you're pointing and clicking or you're using your finger versus a mouse, but it's the, same, it's the same paradigm. Park's office technologies were not just isolated devices. Macero says the basic idea was that people would be tied together 
and communicating electronically. They're generating documents and presentations electronically. They're sharing them. They're printing them out over electronic printer. They're setting it to remote sites over some network. And it's very much what we see today. We're all tied together. We don't use the telephone anymore. We don't write letters. We communicate by email. We generate uh, presentations. We generate spreadsheets. And we, we send them to the people we work with, uh, customers, vendors. We print it out electronically. It's exactly what we see today. The Office of the Future happened almost according to plan, except for one thing. What we hadn't anticipated was the Internet and the World Wide Network where you have all the information in the world at your fingertips that you could Google. That was not, that was not anticipated in the Office of the Future, let me tell you that. Though Xerox's engineers didn't predict the Internet, they did develop another technology to tie people together, one that has become the backbone of even the largest and most complex of today's data centers, Ethernet. It was developed at Park in the early 1970s and brought to market in 1980. Now, you've got to realize that when we announced Ethernet, IBM already had, they thought, the market locked up with their token ring network. Coming out with Ethernet and trying to establish a standard was very difficult to do. So we co-opt DEC and we co-opt Intel to kind of stand behind us. And we announced Ethernet, and I believe it was 1981, and the press just beat the hell out of us. They basically said there's just no way in the world that this has any chance against IBM's token ring. But the advantage it had, it was simple. It was open. You could buy a license for $1,000, whereas the IBM token ring was a closed system. About, uh, oh, seven, eight years ago, it might have been a little bit longer than that, I got a kick by reading an article uh, that IBM finally pulled their last token ring out at a corporate headquarters in Armonk and put Ethernet in, okay? So obviously, you know, Ethernet set the standard. During our conversation at the Computer History Museum, Macero smiles to himself when he spies some Xerox ads promoting Ethernet. One is a poster showing Ethernet coming out of a tube of toothpaste with devices attached. That little uh, diagram up there was uh, when we announced it. Uh, we spent a lot of money in advertising in the 8081 time frame to basically announce not only Ethernet, but the whole star and the whole office of the future. And when the advertising agency came back to us, they actually had a very formal-looking schematic. So we said, now we want something that's more like a cartoon that would be more interesting and that's basically what they came up with. And we spent a lot of money in advertising back in 1980s. We had this one really great ad, I remember. It's a guy in his office, and somebody's asking questions about Ethernet and how it works and so forth. So the guy kind of gets carried away, and then he starts writing on the blackboard. When he gets over the blackboard, then he starts writing on the wall, and the whole office all the walls in the office were filled up with the sketches of how you can use Ethernet to tie all these products together. It was a very good ad. We spent a lot of money on it. We got a lot of good reaction. We also got some negative reaction, too. We had uh, nasty letters from parents that basically said, you know, we've been trying to teach our kids not to write on the wall, and here you run an ad with an adult writing on your wall. So um, we're, we're not going to use your product. We're not going to buy your antifreeze anymore. So there was an antifreeze company called Xerox. It had nothing to do with Xerox, okay? It was kind of funny. But obviously, you spent a lot of money, and it created a standard. You know, God, I don't know how many Ethernet installations there are out there and how many nodes, but it's got to be in the hundreds and hundreds of millions. So what does Macero make of these events in the development of technology? 
Having been a scientific researcher himself, he answers by citing Adlard Cole's textbook, Heavy Weather Sailing, required reading for anyone with a boat, dreaming of sailing the high seas. He gives you all these techniques for survival in storms, you know, heaving to or, or running, running downwind or streaming warps and so forth. And he makes a very important point. He says, a lot of these techniques might have been tried, but the person died, and we don't know about them, okay? So we only actually know about those people who survived. So most of the technology that we see today is really developed by engineers. It's not by marketing people that come up with some great idea. It's usually technologists that have an idea for a product to solve a certain need, and some of those go viral, and a lot of them die. See, we only hear about the ones that go viral. For every one that we hear about, for every Steve Jobs or Larry Ellison or Facebook or Twitter, there are 40 or 50 of them that never went anywhere. Yeah, it was interesting from a technology standpoint, but the need wasn't there or the value proposition wasn't satisfied or wasn't a distribution channel to go push it through. So we only actually see the ones that made it. As of this recording, Don Macero is still living and working in Silicon Valley and is the CEO of the technology company Sendmail. Silicon Minds is a production of Connected Social Media based in Palo Alto, California. You can find us at ConnectedSocialMedia.com and on iTunes at Silicon Minds. I'm Jason Lopez. Thank you for listening. <laughs>